more we can hand the government information in regards to attribution and visibility into what's going on on our own networks or in the industry, even anonymous visibility to some extent, we have to arm our government with the platform, the facts they need, the data they need, and the visibility they need to enforce good diplomacy. Welcome back to another episode of the Mandiant Ion Security Podcast. I'm your host, Luke McNamara. And joining me for our final episode of the year with a very special guest, what better way to end out and finish the year than with Mandiant CEO, Kevin Mandia. Kevin, great to have you here. Luke, thank you. I appreciate it. So there's a lot that we're obviously going to get into and, and many questions I have to ask you, but I think probably a fitting place to start is as we're recording this, uh, we're just a little over the year anniversary of when SolarWinds uh, and the breach and activity around that became public. We recently also put out a blog, I guess, about uh, UNC 2452 and some of the activity we've seen from that threat actor and associated UNC since then. But I guess from your perspective, you know, sitting back and reflecting, now that we have some distance between that initial event, what do you think about the significance of, of both that event and the conversation around supply chain security that we've had since then? Well, first off, don't want to go through it again. It was just a year ago and a day. It was December 8th of last year, I believe, when we went public. And I can tell you, I actually felt that was a good day. At least emotionally, it was a good day, Luke, because I felt we were in a race to go public. Like, I don't, you know, in the back of my mind, maybe it's Catholic guilt. Maybe it's just the right thing to do. I just remember we were all in a push, go live, go public, get the details out. And it would be four days from today when we go live about the SolarWinds implant, December 13th. And, you know, we didn't get to go exactly as scheduled. We had to kind of move it up because the press had found out about it and we didn't want rumor mill to distance truth. So, um, but what have we learned besides don't want to go through that again? And in the back of my mind, as a holiday comes up, Luke, I keep wondering, so are we going to be working this holiday? Are we going to be relaxing this holiday? And for many folks at Bandiant, my hat's off to you because it, it really does feel like every single holiday, we're on a signal call with a customer and something's happened. And you forget that it's Christmas Day or you forget it's Christmas Eve or you forget, you know, I remember July 4th of this year, I was on the phone half the day with Charles, you know, and forgot it was a holiday till I played cornhole at 7 p.m. that night. So a year later, you have that thought. Another another holiday's coming up. You know, a lot of our folks, are gonna, men and women are going to be working through it. My hat's off to them. Second thing, you know, we had always thought, Luke, hey, implants are out there. You know, it wasn't like solar winds. Finding an implant in it was a surprise. It was a matter of time. And I've heard rumor mills of implants and other software. But when we don't do the work, I often just don't believe it. You know, I hate to say it. And so what I think we've learned is implants are fair game for espionage. You know, you look back over the year, that's it's fair game. I also think it made us look at supply chain security and how do we make sure, you know, FireEye now mandated, we're in the supply chain. And we've lived through, Luke, the constant escalation of the vetting of supply chain. Like 20 years ago, nobody asked any questions about cybersecurity. You know, 2004, yeah, they probably did, actually, because we had Graham Leach-Bliley come out and a few other standards and legislation and regulations pushing us. 
but you fast forward to pre-COVID, we had some banks that wanted to show up and audit us in person. So supply chain securities are always kind of mattered to the bigs, but now we're all thinking it and all looking through it. So first and foremost, that's what I learned is, um, you know, it's fair game for, for espionage to have an implant. Second, everybody's paying attention to supply chain. Third, I learned, you know, as a victim, as we responded to our own breach, a lot of things are complicated. You know, like doing a full password reset on every single employee like that is uh, something that's hard for a lot of companies to do. And we learned a lot of things internally at that time at FireEye, now Mandiant. We learned internally some of the things that, hey, you know, you can always do better. Can we come off the grid in under a day? Can we come off the grid in under an hour? Can we do a password reset on every single account, no matter what the impact we would be aware of the impact ahead of time. And, you know, you learn a lot of different things that way. So Luke, there you go. We're going to have another implant. I wish you had a magic wand to detect it. I do know that the next implant found, it'll probably be found faster than, you know, seven, eight months later. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're right in the thick of things. You mentioned the the holiday impact and and the predilection of threat actors to conduct activity around that. And I was thinking as we were actually scheduling this podcast that I hope there's no you know big event that's going to take place right after release this. And it'll be strange that we don't discuss it, but that is. Well, there's, uh, a, there's always something, right? There is no doubt, 0% chance nobody's working on, you know, no cybersecurity professionals are working Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It's literally zero. We will have men and women of Mandiant absolutely maxed out on those days. There's nothing we can do about it, Luke. It, it, it'll ransomware will hit somewhere. We'll, we'll finally have a string we're pulling on that you, you'll forget what day it even is. And you, Luke, you've had it too. When you're sinking your teeth into an investigation or good intel, you forget what day it is. You just keep going because you're chasing something and time matters. So uh, again, hats off to the men and women that are going to be working those two days. And if any of you are working, I'll be working too, because I'd like to hear about it. So, One of the other uh, big things that certainly colored a lot of the discussion around the threat landscape this past year, really has continued into this year, is the discussion around ransomware. Right. And I know you've spent a lot of time talking about that. And you know, I was trying to think of maybe a original question that you've not been asked around that, but I, I think that's probably pretty difficult to do. But when you think about, I guess, where we are right now in the current moment with not just the the evolution of ransomware, but the evolution of our response to that. Uh, you just recently had the U.S. government coming out and talking about, you know, confirming what I think a lot of people have suspected um, that they have engaged in some disruptive operations against some of those those operators and groups. Um, yes. And so there's a lot of different tools you see now being taken out and mm-hmm. and tried to apply to to fix or mitigate this problem to some extent. Where do you think we go from here? Well, you know, in 2019, we, we did a, I can't, you know, I think we call it Cyber Defense Summit. <laughs> you know, I almost said Mircon uh, back in the days. And uh, we did our conference and we had former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright there and present because we had a strong belief that to solve the cybersecurity issues, you, yes, we'll all make new mousetraps and new technology. Yes, we'll all hone in on training our people and having good process. But diplomacy, we constantly kept saying that as a company. And another thing that we said, and, and I was a late bloomer to this one, you know, I've been responding to breaches for 18 years before the light bulb went on. Wait a minute. 
this whole thing's driven by geopolitical conditions. So, you know, I'm hearing a lot of folks picking up on that theme now. I did not pick up on that theme till 2013 when I was sitting at a um, at the Institute of the Study for War in the United States, you know, here in D.C. And folks are going around the room talking about current events. And while they're going around the room talking about current events, I think it was August of 2013, I'm sitting there wondering, why are we responding to the Syrian Electronic Army six places right now? What's going on with these guys? Like, who are they? Where do they come from? What's their agenda? And then all of a sudden, I actually got my head into the current moment, listening to people going around the room at the ISW. And they're like talking about the, you know, the Syrian rebellion, you know, against King Assad. And I started going, oh, wait a minute. There's stuff going on over in Syria. And that's why we're responding to the Syrian Electronic Army. So very late bloomer to this. But when you think about ransomware, without a doubt, it's it's way broader than a technical problem, way broader than a process problem. That's when you realize that the internet enables people to commit crimes from 10,000 miles away. That kind of distance combined with providing a safe harbor for these bad actors just doesn't work if you want to be part of a global economy. So it shows that there's a responsibility of nations to do the right thing. And there will be nations that will abide by governing rule and they will kind of become a cadre of folks that do trade and, and work together. And there'll be nations that don't. And the one thing I've always felt, Luke, we will have a tough time as a world body agreeing to the rules of espionage. I think you can have rules, but it's the the reason you conduct espionage is not the, the playing field's not equal. And you want to leverage the asymmetry in cyber um, uh, to do some things to give you a unique advantage. If you can't win with tanks and you can't win with planes, try to win in cyber and win with information. But uh, when I look at ransomware and crime, I do believe nobody wants to be ransomed. It is a bright line. It is ridiculous. And every nation should recognize that and try to enforce that it doesn't happen. And that means every nation's got to figure out how do we have the infrastructure to pierce anonymity? How do we have the laws that allow people to feel they have some freedoms? And I think that's where the complication arises is that the United States is a nation of laws. We can govern our folks and you have conditional anonymity in the U.S. We have to pierce anonymity on the Internet with court orders and everything else. So this is a very long answer to say diplomacy has to be brought to bear or we will always just be playing goalie. And we'll create new endpoint technologies that we stop all ransomware. That's great it's still going to happen because not everybody can deploy everything everywhere all the time. And so uh, we'll just keep doing that push. And Luke, I think our Intel folks have done a great job. Our whole staff have done a great job constantly pushing the agenda for have to have bilateral discussions, have to call out people that aren't abiding by just common sense rules. Ransomware is a crime. Ransomware puts businesses out of business. Ransomware puts people in harm's way. I am less than 24 hours removed from a screen capture sent to me from Charles Carmichael, that you know, from Steve Elovitz, who leads our incident response. Uh, in many, many of the major incidents we respond to, reminding us of the importance of great cybersecurity. So, I could go on on this topic for half an hour. All I'd leave everybody with is technology is an obvious thing we have to improve. 
people and process we have to improve, you know, a ransomware readiness we have to improve. And by God, we have to improve our diplomatic relations. And with the countries that harbor these uh, bad actors, they should have for their citizens a wholly different internet experience than those countries that have citizens and, and, and they abide by uh, appropriate rules. Well, you actually preempted what was going to be my next question. Um, I was thinking back to uh, CDS this past year in mm-hmm. your presentation, and, and that was one of the things that um, stuck out to me, uh, one of the pieces that you ended on, which is the need to move into this global response. Mm-hmm. And I think you heard that um, echoed also by, um, I remember Jean, Jen Easterly also talking about mm-hmm. uh, something similar in that in that vein. And it does seem like as as difficult as ransomware is as a problem to address, from all the different aspects of a technical standpoint all the way to the the policy discussions, it is a good issue to find sort of global agreement around Mm -hmm. and coalescing to stop um, what is inherently a a criminal problem. Mm -hmm. When you look at the ways that you see or anticipate that we would build more global consensus and and maybe also, I guess, maybe specifically thinking about the role that private sector organizations like ours play into this, what do you see that looking like? Is it sort of, you know, leveraging existing alliances and forums where there is commonality already? And, you know, there's differences of opinion around tech privacy and, and data privacy, et cetera. But is it leveraging those existing frameworks and agreements? And what's the role of the private sector in all this? Yeah. So the role of the private sector, it's fascinating. And, I, you know, when you look at every domain, land, sea and air, the government defends it. And then you get to the cyber domain. And the private sector is defending it, but that's what the case is. There's there's a joint responsibility, and uh, for both the private sector and the public sector to come together. And you know, I think one of the things that I'm very proud about all of us doing is I think attribution does matter. I think you do have to call people out for and expose folks that are bending the rules or breaking the rules, and it's because. With no risk or repercussions, you have no deterrence, period. And that's what I think we had for a while with ransomware, and we may still have it, is just no risk or repercussions to conducting criminal acts until the safe harbors are removed and you can't conduct ransomware. We will always be reading about victims. And I don't think we'll get world peace, Luke. There'll always be a place or two, but I'm pretty convinced if folks want to be a part of a global economy and they see the upside of globalization of all of our nations, uh, they will. we could do a better job enforcing um, rules for everybody to follow. Not sure that addresses your question because the way you asked it, I could go again for another hour. Um, but our, the role of the private sector is to build the best capabilities they can to defend their customers. The role of the public sector is to make sure the public sector organizations are defended. And quite frankly, you don't want the private sector to impose a proportional response to cyber attacks. You want the public sector, the government to do that. You do not want the private sector impacting the doctrine of different nations or escalating things in the cyber domain. That is something that's the purview of government. So loosely at the highest level of abstraction, private sector has to secure itself and work hard to do that. The public sector has to work hard to secure itself. And then where they come together is make sure they each are securing, you know, sharing enough to get the job done. We're all getting better at securing ourselves. Then I think the private sector 
the more we can hand the government information in regards to attribution and visibility into what's going on on our own networks or in the industry, even anonymous visibility to some extent, we have to arm our government with the platform, the facts they need, the data they need and the visibility they need to enforce good diplomacy, to enforce whatever doctrine we choose to use in the cyber domain. We just recently put out our, our predictions report for next year. I think we're probably a couple months away also from getting M trends out uh, next year as well. And I think February, April, I think one of the hardest tasks sometimes uh, in this space is sort of anticipating or predicting what threats are we going to see coming down the road, right? We all know that the yeah. threat landscape is not going to stay static, but anticipating exactly how it's going to shift. You, you reference the sort of geopolitical impact and landscape. Right. You look at, you know, sort of low level crises in that space right now, whether it's Ukraine or Taiwan, you think right. about some of the threat actors that play in those areas and, and how an escalation in cyber could be in advance of something in the, the kinetic realm. Are there any things, you know, maybe it's on the geopolitical side, maybe it's something that's more uh, niche and technical, but anything you see right now in the threat landscape that maybe we are underappreciating or not considering the potential risks of how it could evolve as much as we should? You know, as I think of that question, I go right into the things that I haven't seen in my career with firsthand experience. And there will be those listening to this podcast, Luke, and go, oh, Mandia, you don't know. But things that I haven't seen since getting involved in computer security in 1993, I've never seen forward deployed industrial control system aware malware in the United States. I haven't seen it. And I don't think our people have seen it. And if we have, let me know. And I want to see it firsthand. Uh, so I feel like there's there's a border out there that I haven't seen people cross. That's one of them. No industrial control system aware malware deployed in the United States. Haven't seen it. Second, I haven't seen a good false flag operation. We've seen clumsy ones. And I think it was intentionally clumsy. I think you know, a lot of states, if they're trying to affirm their uh, agenda in cyber, still wear their jersey appropriately uh, when they do so. So let's keep an eye out for those because that's obviously we haven't seen a good one sooner or later. And by the way, if we have seen it, it worked. We don't know. Okay. Right. Third, um, I haven't seen a modern nation, something we'd attribute to a national uh, hacking, you know, whether it be hacking on behalf of a nation or actually folks in uniform badging into a building and then compromising folks. I haven't seen them change data. There's an exception to maybe changing log files or maybe changing config files or software to get an intended result, but not changing data we depend on to make the decision, you know, decisions and things of that nature. Because I don't think any modern nation on offense feels like dealing with great. Now we all change the data so we can't trust it. So I haven't seen those three things happen. What does that mean? Let's keep our eye out for them. Let's hope they don't happen. Um, but, uh, you know, that's probably the next escalation. Unless we figure out how to, to turn the trend, my whole career has been gradual incrementalism and escalation in, in the cyber domain. So shifting gears a little bit to talk uh, about some of what's been going on with the company. Mm hmm the Mania Advantage platform. You know, we have an increasingly diverse set of customers. When you think about maturity level, when you think about what it is that they are trying to do, their needs, right? Mm -hmm. Building up and training their workforce, developing an insider threat program, validation. So much of the strategy going forward seems to, to kind of center around the Mania Advantage platform. So I'm curious your thoughts of, of where you see that kind of evolving and how we will 
utilize that to kind of meet customers where they're at in their security journey? Yeah, I think the goal has always been, and, and I've said this, you know, I, I studied computer science back in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, and I've always felt software automates human process. That's what it does. That's what it's been created to do. And if you can automate process, computers don't get sick. So, you know, you can get more consistency out of it and predictability out of a computer than a human. Our goal has always been to overlay Mandian expertise on any security program. And every company has a security program, whether they know it or not, right? They have to have the means to collect telemetry and say anything bad happening, yes or no, period. And that's why we have that telemetry. That's why there's a thing called an audit log. You know, it's when you build software, you wanna record events that occur in your application to make sure there's no misuse, to make sure that your software works appropriately. So I think at the highest level of abstraction, the goal of Mandiant has always been to be a seamless extension of our customers' teams, period. That means Mandiant Advantage should be seen as adding a thousand people, a thousand security experts to your security program. And you can have that materialize in many different ways. It could be we're, we have software that looks at all the telemetry data and automates what we think. And, you know, here's things that you need to put your attention on. And, and that's for a lot of folks that have their own security expertise. They want to use Mandiant Advantage to kind of filter or minimize from all the telemetry they have down to the core events that matter most. And you do that minimization through machine learning models, knowing what bad looks like, and, and even having signatures or correlation rules if you need it, and having great threat intel. Understanding the adversary helps you minimize from, you know, to find that proverbial needle in the haystack. So that's, you know, and then so demanding expertise as we automate it is answering the question, do we have a problem? Yes or no. And the next thing, you know, it, it's we want to have a seamless extension where our customers you know, just by subscribing to the Mandiant Advantage can work with us. They can assign us tasks. Hey, we need your help on this. Can you interrogate this endpoint and tell us what you think? You know, and, and we've got some of those capabilities today and some will continue to, to advance, but that's, that's really it. We're going to automate everything we think and everything we know as best as we can, Luke. But at the same time frame, we want to be able to have a dialogue human to human dialogue inside of the platform itself. So when folks need help, we can surge and help them at the moment of need. And we always call that expertise on demand. So, you know, that that's how, when I think of the Mandiant Advantage, that's exactly what it is. We're applying the Mandiant Advantage, our skills, our intel, and our expertise to that security operation that subscribes to it. So I came in via the, the iSight Partners acquisition, and I remember, you know, as we were all kind of being onboarded and getting the sense of now all the, the capacity of everything that FireEye Mandiant had visibility into, campaigns in the past where we saw maybe a couple targets, we could now see a much wider array of who all was impacted, right, because of the deployment of, of, of FireEye devices. Or, you know, being able to see what the second stage malware was because there, we were now part of a company that was doing incident response and had visibility inside the network. And mm -hmm. so it was it was amazing, again, just how much additional data enabled the Intel function to better understand the threat landscape. Mm -hmm. We're now in this sort of post-divestiture world, and partnerships have always been important for right. the company. But I'm curious in particular how you see the role of, of partnerships that maintain or give us access to data 
yes. to to maintain that visibility of knowing more than anyone else. Well, you know, when you whenever you're in the Intel business, it's all about collecting the right data, the right telemetry. And, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be all data everywhere all the time. It's got to be the right data. And so we've got to, I can tell you before the divestiture, when we were FireEye, we were surrounded, meaning it was hard to have a partner ecosystem when you did everything. You know, we made control products. We had an endpoint product, a network product, an email security product, a cloud SIM, consulting, managed defense. We had all these different things. And at the end of the day, how do you partner with someone? They've got it, you know, without being a competitor. And so we streamlined it. We're out of the controls business. Our goal is to make all controls more effective with our knowledge. We serve our customers best by knowing more about the threat actors than anybody else. That means all our folks that are in charge of collections should be literally, here's the data that is gold. Let's go find it. Let's go make sure we can tap into that and apply what we know and apply analytics to it. So I think we're always in the search for more telemetry and we will partner with companies and pretty much everyone who uses demanding advantage We've got to use each instance of that, not just as a means to uh, push our knowledge and capability to customers, but also be able to appropriately understand and, and collect enough telemetry to secure an ecosystem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think the direction that uh, we need to go in and being mm -hmm. technology agnostic seems to help a lot with that. Well, you know, Luke, it's every time we're responding to a breach or two, or even when we say things like here's fin 13 and here's what we know i'm always pondering do we know five percent of the extent of their activities or 95 percent and we never really know you know so our goal is to constantly push that envelope up to to knowing more and more about the adversary so i referenced um the the eyesight acquisition uh recently but um you know we've had a lot of acquisitions right. over the years and there's a lot of different ways people have ended up here at Mandiant. Um, mm -hmm. And they bring kind of the different cultures that they came up into security uh, with them. Right. Just as I guess maybe a superficial example of the differences. I remember, um, you know, going from the eyesight culture of jeans and uh, flip flops, huh. and then showing yeah. up in the rest of the office, and there were a lot more suits. It's a superficial example. But uh, you see how there's there's a lot of different yes. um, cultural elements in this space. And I think one of the the exciting things of being uh, part of this company yeah. is you realize it truly does take a team and you yeah. need people with different viewpoints and mindsets and experiences to really tackle the the you know the extent of all the problems that we're facing i'm curious from your standpoint with these different cultural elements within the company how do you foresee or how do you want the company to kind of grow forward as you know, we're now one team, we're, we're laser focused right. on this mission of, of being Mandiant. What do you foresee that looking like? I think first and foremost, be the best in the world at what you do. That's what we should all be striving to do. And you can do that whether you're in flip-flops and shorts or in a suit. Uh, so it, it's not the clothing that'll dictate that, that desire. And obviously you wanna do that with folks that respect one another, listen to each other and work well together with corporate DNA as we become a very large group. But I think first and foremost, my goal has always been, Luke, if we're doing it, we're the best in the world at it. If we're responding to breaches, be the best in the world at incident response. If we're collecting on Intel, be the best in the world at collecting the telemetry required. If we're having conditioned and and uh, fully complete Intel and, and we're, we're providing finished reports or fintel, be the best in the world at it. 
and that's it. And that should bring all of us together. If we're going to validate and do Mandiant validation, let's have the best software possible, the best, most realistic means to simulate attacks and the best remediation recommendations. So that should be what brings us together. We did not, I mean, it's security, Luke. Ultimately, we're building a bulletproof vest as best as possible in cyberspace. And you got to block everything you know about or do the best you can to detect everything you're aware of. Uh, security is too important to be second, third, fifth best. So that's what that's the common thread that should bring people to Mandiant and keep people at Mandiant. If we're doing it, we have no intention to be a fast follower. We intend to be the best in the world at what we do. Uh, and then I don't care what you wear. The reason we wear suits, I'll share with you this anecdote, because I always took a lot of, you know, as we hired folks, they were like, Mandia, why are you in a suit and tie every day? I felt vindicated during an election year when somebody called saying, hey, we need you to respond right now. And we could show up not in jean shorts and flip flops and a tie dye. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But the reason folks are in suits is they may have to be client facing. And if you're client facing to show our respect for our customers, we, you know, we show up dressed appropriately. That being said, if you're not leaving the office that day, hey, I don't care if you come in with nothing but a kilt. If you're the best in what you do, I salute you. Great answer. And final question. I guess when you think about everything that's happened this past year, uh, mm. we've talked about some of what's been evolving and occurring in the threat landscape, some of the changes that have been going on with the company itself, with the divestiture. You know, we've graduated several groups this year. We put mm -hmm. out a lot of great research and we've been doing it all in the middle of a continued pandemic and right. um, having to adapt to to how our customers are adapting and changing. What's the, and maybe it's difficult to narrow it down to one, but what's maybe the most important thing you're proud of what we've done as a company this year? Yeah, it's hard to bring it down to just one thing, Luke. We've had a sustained and continued effort to notify people of who's doing what. I believe a lot of what we're seeing in our U U.S. government, you know, with their heightened awareness of the challenges and their visibility, I feel like we provide a lot of that visibility. I think we're part of a collective team of the private and public sector where our job is to have more knowledge about the threat actors than anybody. And I just think we do a great job sharing that knowledge. Everybody's getting better. And even, you know, and a lot of people will think, well, you know, that's about TTPs and just blocking stuff. I think we have tremendous amounts of impact on attribution, who's doing it, why they're doing it. And we're pushing a set of facts forward that are becoming the bases for the diplomacy that our nation's going to project over time. So we're, we're, we're an important company because of that. So we have tech, great. We have people and we, and we have process to help everybody secure themselves. And then we have a body of knowledge that we share with the appropriate folks so that they have better visibility to impact globally the whole cybersecurity uh, threat landscape. It's exciting to see that from all different aspects of, again, as we've talked about, the different levels of you know response to something like ransomware uh, mm -hmm. to see the role that we're we're playing at those high level discussions all the way down to helping a specific customer address you know that call that they got on mm -hmm. a friday evening because they now have been hit with a ransomware breach right well it, it's uh there was a couple saturdays in a row where the first call i got that day was someone telling me about what we were doing that day and uh and we have people working around the clock on it. But what I liked about it is there was a dependency to some extent 
on our opinions right up front. Who did it? So we understand, do we need a national response to this one? Is it a national security issue or not? Also, we started becoming the day one question, you know? Uh, and uh, I, you know, when we had uh, the Colonial Pipeline breach, I'm not sure our folks recognized, hey, this could be a national security problem, you know, within the first 24 hours. I actually found out about that one, Luke, from someone on the outside calling me, not our guys. Uh, so that's important. You know, we're on the front lines of this thing, and we are definitely impacting not only domestic policy, but I, I think we're impacting how nations approach the diplomacy of the geopolitical conditions that are actually creating the attacks we're seeing. Well, I, I know that 2022 is going to be a busy year. There's no signs of anything slowing down both here at the company or what's going on in the threat landscape. Yeah. So I appreciate you taking some time out to, uh, to chat and uh, happy holidays and look forward to what's in store uh, next year. Luke, thank you very much. Take care, everyone. Take care.